So we'll start. Uh, we'll start as we usually do. Yeah, being uh, with in the presence of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, imagining them in front of us, and the sentient beings around us. So as I've described before, now describe it to yourself and create the visualization yourself. And uh, really think that you know the real Buddhas are there and they are supporting your practice and delighted that you're practicing, as are all the sentient beings around you. Let's generate a motivation. So a very important element in Mahayana Buddhism is to see that we and other living beings are no different in wanting happiness and not suffering, in being trapped in samsara, in not knowing the causes of happiness and the causes of suffering, and therefore creating lots of causes of suffering. And based on that equality that we share as mere sentient beings, then we see that we can't justify practicing the path for ourself alone, or even in this life, looking out for our own welfare while ignoring others. So this pertains on a personal level to not being self-centered within your family or your workplace. And it applies on a broader level of all of society, of our country, of the world, and not cherishing just our own group and ignoring others, but understanding how we're all interconnected. and how actually we cannot be happy as long as other beings are miserable. (coughs) Why not? 
Because if we look out only for our own happiness and don't care about others, then the people around us are going to be unhappy. And what happens to us when we're surrounded by unhappy people? And especially if the people who are unhappy see that due to our own self-centeredness, we don't care about them and we take whatever is good for ourselves, that's going to invite jealousy and resentment on their parts. And then we will live surrounded by people who are jealous and resentful. And how does it feel to live surrounded by people who are jealous and resentful versus surrounded by people who are happy? Just think of the difference from your own side. If you wish yourself well, how much your own happiness depends also on the well-being of those around you. And so that's why His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, if you want to be selfish, take care of others. If you want to be happy yourself, work for the welfare of those around you too. So it's important that every day in the morning we think about this and reaffirm our motivation to work for the benefit of everybody, to be kind to those around us. And then, of course, when we bring in the situation of samsara, then to really want to become fully awakened Buddhists so we can not just benefit people in this life, but help them to be free of a cyclic existence altogether. So with this motivation, then let's listen to the teachings, share the Dharma, and live our lives. So it's true, isn't it? Yeah. If we just care about ourselves, 
the people around us are going to be jealous and resentful. Just like we get jealous and resentful when we're around people who just take, you know, uh, look after themselves and don't care about us. Yeah. So it really makes sense what His Holiness says. If you want to be happy, take care of others. But usually, when we see other people are unhappy, we get mad at them. Why are you so unhappy? Why are you complaining to me? Leave me alone. Okay. Now, sometimes, depends what kind of role you are uh, in relationship with those people. Yeah. If it's somebody who's very close, maybe the way to to help them be happy in that moment is to help them let go of their resentment. Yeah. By speaking kindly and helping them to process it and see how their resentment makes them miserable. But with other people, maybe the way at that moment to benefit them is to listen to what they're complaining about and see if you can help solve their problem. So it depends who the person is, what kind of relationship you have with them. Yeah but just kind of uh, dismissing people is not the way to uh, even work for our own happiness. Huh? I mean, we've all lived in families. What, what is it like living in a family where two people are mad at each other? Even they don't quarrel in front of you. The whole house vibrates with tension. Yeah? True or not true? Yeah? When you're in a, a, a house with people who don't get along, just the energy there, whether they talk to each other, whether they yell at, scream at each other, or they're completely, you know, cold-shouldered to each other. It's the energy you you, you feel, Yeah? Some, some, for some reason, this made me recall an experience I had. Um, probably in my early 20s, my roommate was getting married. And uh, I knew her family was very argumentative. She had told me a lot about her family. Um, but I was. she asked me to be the bridesmaid. So I was over at the family's house the morning of the wedding. So weddings are supposed to be happy, you know, and everybody's happy and excited and everything. The tension in that house was, you know, it was, it was suffocating, you know, because the, the people were angry, you know. I have no idea what they were angry about, but... They were just angry. And, you know, I'm a complete stranger. I don't even know them or know their habits, but I could feel it. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you can feel it on social levels too. Uh, How uh, when people 
feel that they're getting neglected or mistreated. Yeah, they're upset, they're angry. And then they let you know about it, and then it affects you. Yeah, last night there was a, another murder of a young black man who uh, was stopped um, for, uh, it was a traffic stop, because on his rearview mirror he had little air fresheners that were dangling. He's 20 years old. This happened in, uh, in Michigan, not Michigan, uh, Minnesota, about 10 miles from where Derek Chauvin's trial is happening. And uh, he called his mother and said, you know, they want the insurance. I don't know where it is because his parents just gave him the car a couple of weeks ago and he was out with his girlfriend in the middle of the afternoon. And uh, when the cops came back, they, they wanted to arrest him. You know, they had run a thing and saw that he had an outstanding warrant. I don't know what the warrant was from. I read, you know, that it probably what it was a nonviolent thing, but that'll come out in the news soon enough. Anyway, um, the mother had said, you know, put the officer on the phone and I'll tell him where the insurance is. When the officer came back, he told the young man to get out of the car, and he said, why? And, you know, anyway, they got him out of the car. He had to drop the phone in the car. And then, uh, you know, they wanted to arrest him, and he got back in the car, and uh, the officer shot him. And then he drove away. He wasn't mortally injured at that moment. He drove a few blocks, crashed into another car, and he was dead, 20 years old, a 20-year-old kid. His girlfriend was in the car. She wasn't harmed. Okay, So guess what happened in the neighborhood in Minnesota? It was not peaceful last night. It wasn't. It didn't seem that, like there was a lot of violence, but there were people in the streets and they were upset. Yeah. Very upset. And I'm upset too, because if we look over the last few years, how many young black men have been killed at, after a traffic stop? Yeah. So part of it is because, you know, they don't, you know, they say why to the officer instead of doing what the officer wants. Or they try and flee because they're terrified, like this boy did. But to use uh, violence to kill somebody for that, yeah. So, uh, you know, this kind of thing is just, it's such an incredible example of how we have to cherish other living beings as much as we cherish ourselves, yeah, and treat people fairly and uh, not, you know, because then when this kind of thing happens, okay, not only is the African-American community upset, 
although his mother looked like she was white. Yeah. Um, he was darker. But uh, not only are th- the people there upset, especially because of George Floyd's murder, um, but then it affects everybody in the country because we don't live in a peaceful country. Yeah? And, we, and then people don't trust each other. So it, this, this is just showing that we are very interdependent. So if we want to be peaceful and happy, we have to make sure the people around us are also treated well. Okay, and that's doing it merely for our own selfish reasons. You know, of course we want to, we shouldn't do it just for our own selfish reasons because we want to live in a peaceful place. But, uh, you know, to do it because other people are just like us and we don't want them to suffer. Okay, but so what I'm getting in, in talking about this is you have to take the Dharma and apply it to every aspect of your life. Yeah. Not just something intellectual where you know the points. Not just apply it to you and your family so you get along better with your family. But we have to really think big and have and be influenced by the Dharma perspective regarding everything. Okay. Now some people tell me I talk too much about politics. I don't see something like what happened last night as politics. Yeah. I see that as human suffering. Yeah. And injustice. And I think not only was that young man killed, and his family upset, and the whole community upset. There were demonstrations well into the night. But also, think about the officer who shot the kid. His whole life is entirely different now. One short moment with that impulse to fire the gun and who knows why he did it? You know, he could have tased the person. He could have just talked to the kid. Yeah? But one moment, and that officer, his whole life is going to be different now. And not only his life, but everybody in his, um, I guess it's a precinct, because all the other officers from his area had to form a whole cordon around their office after this happened because people poured into the streets and they were upset. So you see, like one moment where the afflictions take over and how it harms oneself, it harms others, it explodes into society. Yeah? So when we're talking here about the disadvantages of the afflictions, you know, 
it isn't just that you don't get along with your mother for the half a day, okay? It's the afflictions create this whole mess in society, okay? So then the, the thing, to, how to use that understanding, and this is very important, you know, we have to know when we understand something, how to use that understanding to come to a good conclusion. If we don't know that, then we see what happened last night, and we get violently angry, and we start taking it out on other people, which only worsens the situation for ourselves and others. Okay? So as Dharma students, you know, first thing we have to do is apply it to our Dharma practice. Yeah? So this shows the disadvantages of afflictions yeah, very clearly. Yeah? The young man's tendency to flee, which is understandable, but it wasn't in his best interest, was it? You know, the cops instantaneously using violence. I don't know how understandable that is, but, you know, what you see the result of it. And, And then come to the conclusion, my afflictions are just as bad. I'm no different than these people. You put me in that situation, and I might very well act in the exact same way. Yeah. So to prevent myself from acting in that way, okay, this is why I have to practice the Dharma. And this is why I have to cut the root of the afflictions altogether so that they cannot arise in my mind stream again and cause both me and other people suffering, and even make a whole big deal in, you know, in society. And so this is not, so that's the first thing. I have to do something about my afflictions. But I also, second, I have to get out of samsara. Because even if I lessen my afflictions so I don't act like that, yeah, the seeds, the afflictions are still in my mind stream. And given the right situation, I could act like that. So I need to get out of samsara altogether. And then third, you know, all these people are, are in the same boat as me. And I want them to be free of samsara too. So that you know, this whole thing, you know, just does, doesn't continue to happen. So therefore, I have to aim for full awakening where I have the wisdom, compassion, and skill to be of the greatest benefit to others. Okay, so you put it in terms, you use what you saw to enhance your Dharma practice. Then your mind is able to look at this situation through Dharma eyes, yeah, and not be angry. You know, it moves you to see this level of suffering, but you're not angry at it. 
And then you think, what can I do in this life to help those people or to prevent this kind of thing happening again? Yeah. And then we see, you know, what can we do as an individual? What can we do by joining together with other people? Yeah. Our Dharma practice still remains the, the central pillar of everything. But we can act in society to remedy society's problems. Okay? If you only act in society to remedy its problems and you don't take care of your emotions about the whole thing, then you become exactly like the people you're complaining about. And then your own mind becomes uncontrolled and starts dividing the world into friend and enemy, us and them. Okay, that's not dharma. Okay. So, we have to go over this again and again, and there are many things that happen in society that enable us to do this again and again, aren't there? Yeah. And so we have to really keep at it, transforming our mind, yeah, transforming our own attitude. And realize that there's nothing to be proud of because we have a precious human life and happen to have the fortune to meet the Dharma. We should not, there's nothing to be arrogant of. You know, oh, I've met the Dharma because in my past life I created virtue. No, you don't use it to lord over other people. You use that to recognize that you worked very hard in a previous life to get where you are now, and so you want to continue to practice now while you have the, the opportunity. But you don't get arrogant about it. You know, One thing that really helped me see that, you might remember, this was many years ago, the Rodney King incident in Los Angeles. And, you know, there was a hot chase along the LA freeways. I grew up outside of Los Angeles. So, and went to college in the city. Um, And, you know, the cops beat him. They finally, you know, stopped him finally after this wild chase. They beat him, you know. And then the whole neighborhood got upset. There were riots and demonstrations. And there were many uh, Korean families in the area who ran grocery stores. And their grocery stores were getting uh, affected by the the riots, you know, and they got upset. And the bus drivers got upset because people wanted to go here and there and they were mad and, you know. And people were, the whole community was very splintered taking sides. But I thought, you know, given given how each of those parties were raised and the communities they grew up in. If I had been born, you know, as Rodney King, if I had been born as the cops, if I had been born as the the African-Americans in the ghetto, if I had been born as the Korean grocers, I would have done, without the Dharma, I would have done exactly the same thing. 
So there's nothing to be proud about in all of this, you know, because I could have been any of those people. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is, this is why we want to get out of samsara and why we want to generate bodhicitta to get out. Okay, so now, okay, there were some questions from yesterday. Um, so how does someone know if they have directly and non-conceptually realized the emptiness of inherent existence? Is it indicated to the practitioner by a qualified teacher? Is it something the practitioner realizes? Well, first of all, you have to study and you have to listen to teachings and learn about emptiness. Then you have to reflect on it. To really understand what emptiness is about, we have to purif- engage in purification practices. We have to gain engage in practices to create merit. We have to, these are all preliminaries. We have to understand the four truths like we're studying right now. There's a lot of preliminary material uh, and especially having a very strong understanding of karma and its effects and faith in karma and its effects. So these kinds of preliminaries, then you study and hear teachings about emptiness, you reflect on them, and you meditate on them, okay? You also have to keep good ethical conduct in the process of doing that and to develop a very strong concentration, okay? And because you've meditated on emptiness for such a long time, exploring it from this angle and that angle and the other angle, yeah, when you first have, you first have a, what they call a correct assumption of it, where you kind of get what it's about. And then there's many levels of that. So you keep on practicing, contemplating, yeah, deepening your understanding. You get to a stage where you have an inferential, conceptual understanding of emptiness. And that's quite powerful. At that time, then you have to make sure that you combine your inferential understanding with serenity, with deep concentration. And after that, you know, again, meditating long, long times, deeply familiarizing your mind with emptiness, then the direct perception happens. Okay? Now, as holiness says, he had an experience a while ago that was, he said it was like lightning in his heart, but he was wondering whether he had really realized emptiness or not. And so to check, he he said, and here he was just talking about an inferential understanding of emptiness. He wasn't even talking about the uh, direct perception. He said that he took his understanding and applied it to other objects to see if it still had the same impact. 
when it didn't, then he knew that he hadn't realized emptiness of inherent existence. He had maybe realized the emptiness of self, a self-sufficient, substantially existent person, which is a grosser level of selflessness. Okay? So you check everything out like this. Then you go talk to your teacher, you know, and, and your teacher can also help you decide if, if you've understood it. Yeah? So don't think that it's going to come soon. Yeah? I remember when I first learned the Dharma, yeah, um, actually the course I went to, it was the first course where Rinpoche had really gone into how to meditate on emptiness. So I was a new student. There were all these old students. The old students were so excited. Oh, now he's really teaching us how to meditate on emptiness. Yeah, so I thought, okay, this is really good, you know. And and I thought, okay, I'm going to meditate. And, yeah, and, and at that time, they had the older students do what were called sangha exams, where they had to give a talk in front of everybody, and then everybody asked them questions, and even the lamas asked them questions. So I was a newcomer, you know, to Buddhism, but I thought, when I do a sangha exam, I'm going to do it on emptiness, because I really understand this. You know, I was out to lunch, long lunch. Yeah, but, you know, it's exciting when you hear the words and you think, yeah. And then, you know, your your idea of emptiness is like the emptiness of your stomach. Yeah, or the emptiness of your bank account. Uh, that's not the kind of emptiness we're talking about. Okay. So uh, there's another question of, you know, are there qualities that we practitioners should be looking for when we practice searching for emptiness? Actually, we don't search for emptiness. Okay? We're not looking to find emptiness. We're looking to see how things exist. And if they exist in the way they appear to us as being independent entities that don't rely on any other factors, and we can't find them existing in that way, that is the realization of the emptiness of inherent existence. So it's not that emptiness is something out there that we're looking for. Okay? Emptiness is what they call a non-affirming negative. It's an absence of what we thought should be there, but wasn't there when we examined how things exist. Okay, and there's another question. Are the hell realms and hungry ghost realms a form or formless or neither? They're in the desire realm. Okay? 
So what we often call the six classes of beings, the hell beings, the hungry ghosts, the animals, human beings, and then uh, devas, you know, or desire realm gods. These, these are all in the desire realm. Above that, you have the form realm beings who have a subtler body that they, and they are born there due to deep states of med- meditation. Above that is the formless realm, yeah, where they don't have those even kind of subtle bodies. Uh, and they're born there because of even deeper levels, levels of concentration. Okay. That, we'll come to that when we get to, uh, I'm not sure when we'll get there, but we will get there. Okay. We, we get there in chapter two. Okay. Now, how long it'll take us to get there? I'm, I'm not making any statements about that. <laughs> okay. So right now we're at, in page 15 towards the bottom where the Pali tradition speaks of four types of cessation. Okay? and But not all of these are nirvana. So we've been talking about true cessations. So another tip when you're stud- studying Buddhism, not everything that has a certain name is that thing. Okay? So there's four kinds of cessations, but not all of them are true cessations. Okay, so the first one of these is called cessation by factor substitution. And this occurs after we have cultivated the antidote to a particular affliction and temporarily eliminated it. Okay, so this is probably the level that we're at now if we even remember to pl- apply the antidotes. Okay? So, although the, real, the wisdom realizing emptiness is the antidote that cuts the root of all the afflictions, that's difficult to understand, and it takes a long time to realize it. So what we do beforehand is we focus on antidotes that are appropriate for each affliction because those antidotes are easier to understand. And by refraining the situation in our mind, the affliction goes down. It hasn't been eliminated completely, but temporarily our mind is free from it. So when we practice lojong, a mind training, a lot of those uh, techniques are helping us to do this. We reframe the situation and how it looks to us. Okay? So, when angry, we meditate on fortitude. Now, to meditate on fortitude, we don't just sit there and go, fortitude, fortitude, I'm going to have fortitude. You know, that, that, that isn't the meditation on fortitude. Okay? So first you have to learn what fortitude is, and you have to learn the different ways of refraining the situation. Okay? And so to do this, then 
you study like a mind training text or you study the Lam Rim or you get His Holiness's book, Healing Anger, or you get the uh, a book I did called, uh, what did I call it, Working with Anger, <laughs> or you read Shanti Deva's chapter six and get teachings on it. And then all those things, those are resources that present a whole variety of ways to reframe a situation so that you don't get angry or anger having arisen, you realize, I don't really need to be angry in this situation. Okay? So, um, you know, one way to do it, I think I just described it in terms of the Rodney King situation. Imagine being brought up as the person that, you know, if you're having a difficult problem with a person you know, or even with a politician that you don't know, but you see on the screen a lot. Um, think, if I were brought up like that person, in their family with those values, if I came into life with their kind of karma and experienced what they experienced, I would probably think and act very similar to them. Okay? So then it helps us understand the person and how it's not the person who is bad and evil. It's the afflictions that are controlling that person's mind that are the problem. Okay? So then you have compassion for them, wishing them to be free from those afflictions. Because you can see when they're under the power of those afflictions, they do all the things that disturb your happiness and other people's well-being as well. Okay? So you, that gives you some way of reducing your anger. Yeah? You see that the person is not an evil person. They are a confused person. Yeah, very confused because they're doing what they're doing in an attempt to bring happiness. But even by harming others, they themselves are not happy. Okay, And to understand that when somebody does something harmful, it isn't because they're a happy person and they woke up in the morning and said, look, outside... If we open the blinds, we could see it. There's a beautiful blue sky. The sun is shining. The daffodils is starting to come up. It's beautiful. I think I'm going to go harm somebody. You know, if people are happy, they don't go out and deliberately harm people. Why do they deliberately harm people? Because they're confused because they're suffering because of their own afflictions. Okay? And then sometimes it's helpful to think, if we have any kind of self-awareness, of how we've acted in the past when we've been under the influence of our afflictions. Have you done things in your life that you regret? Yeah? 
when you look at those things, would you like other people to have some compassion for you and to understand how miserable you were in that moment when you did that and how under the control you were of your afflictions at that time you did that? Yeah. We would like that kind of understanding because we can look back on what we did and say, you know, how could I have done that? Well, we were under the control of afflictions. So just as we are like that, so are, so is the other person who's harming us directly. Or so is the other person who's doing harming somebody else in society that sets the whole thing off. Okay? So that gives space in our mind to have some compassion, some softness, some understanding for the other person. Instead of our mind being like this with anger. Okay? So... It's hard sometimes because when we've been hurt, there's this righteous indignation that comes up of how could they have done that to me? What they did is awful, unforgivable. They need to suffer. And we've been raised in a culture where justice is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And as Gandhi said, if you live that way, everybody will be blind and everybody will have no teeth. Yeah? And that includes us. Because, you know, people will retaliate against us, you know, doing to us what we have done to others in that way. Okay, so my sixth grade story, you're going to hear it again. Okay, so for those of you who have been sixth grade girls, okay, sixth grade boys have their own trip. (laughs) But sixth grade girls, okay, you remember? Okay, so in my sixth grade class, every week we made a list of who we liked and who we disliked. You know, the whole list. At the top of the list, our friends. At the bottom of the list, the people we didn't like. Okay? And we shared our lists, and we had our own little cliques. Okay? This is, this is how you learn to... I mean, this is the same thing that happens in it with adults. You know, they just don't write their lists down. But you work in a job, and you have a list in your mind of your favorite people and then the people that you just can't stand. Okay, You just don't share it. Well, you do share it with each other. You sit and talk during coffee breaks about this one and that one and who you like and who you don't like. Okay, So this is just the sixth grade version of what you, you're going to grow up to do when as an adult. So we each had our little cliques in sixth grade. Remember that? Yeah. So I was part of one clique. Yeah. I was not part of the athletic clique. 
I was not one of the people that was first chosen when people, you know, remember choosing teams in each team. I was not among the first group of people chosen. Okay, so I wasn't in, in, in that kind of clique. And I wasn't in the social clique, you know, the super popular kids, you know, who were the kids with straight blonde hair. Yeah, in my time, you know, to be in, you had to have straight blonde hair, long. I had short, dark, curly hair. Okay, in sixth grade, that is nearly a tragedy. Yeah, the self-centeredness you have in sixth grade, isn't it? Yeah? So... There were six of us in our clique. I don't even know if I could name all of them now. But there was one of them who was a very nice girl. But I don't know why I decided she should not be in our clique. So I talked to all the other girls in the clique, the other four girls, and then there was me and and Rosie, and I convinced them all to kick Rosie out of our clique. So we did that. We kicked her out. She was heartbroken. I felt triumphant. Until the next week, when they kicked me out. Yeah. And I can now understand why they kicked me out. At that time, I couldn't. I thought it was so unfair. Okay. But you see, you know, when we retaliate, it just, it, you know, I don't know whatever happened to that clique. There were only four people. I think they may have actually reinstated Rosie afterwards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I was a jerk. Yeah. But, you know, this is the kind of thing that, that we learn as children. And then we grow up to do it in adult ways, too, okay, that are equally as despicable. But we always think we're right. Okay, so factor substitution. You understand, like, you meditate on fortitude when you're angry, yeah. So if I had had any kind of smarts in sixth grade, which I didn't, I got A's, but I was not smart. Yeah, being smart and getting good grades are two different things. <laughs> okay. Um, if I, you know, had been smart, I would have said, you know, what's going on in my mind that all of a sudden, for no reason, I don't like Rosie? Yeah. And then dealt with my mind and realized, you know, actually she's a friend. She hasn't done anything. That it was just me being dissatisfied and wanting some sense of power. Imagine, you know, what sentient beings to do to, to have a sense of power. That's what you do in sixth grade. Look what you do when you have power in an elected office. How how damaging it can be. 
or in a, you know, well, now even the dictators have elected offices, you know, don't they? Putin was elected. Yeah. So, you know, to look at these situations and say, you know, it's my mind that's out of control. I have to take a bigger picture at this and and really and try and understand what's going on here. And not just, again, this narrow mind of me, I, my, and mine. Okay? So for anger, we, we meditate on fortitude, or we meditate on compassion, or we meditate on love. For attachment, yeah, we don't meditate on love and compassion because it'll just make us more attached to the other person instead, or, the, or to the object. You know, although, uh, I get, can you have compassion for your computer? <laughs> uh, when you're in computer hell. Um, no, but you, this is attachment. You're attached to your new computer. No, you meditate on impermanence. When there's attachment in the mind, you meditate on impermanence. You meditate that even if I got everything I wanted, I still wouldn't be satisfied, and I'm still subject to birth, aging, sickness, and death. Okay? When you're jealous... You meditate on rejoicing, which, of course, is the last thing you want to do when you're jealous. But that's why it's the antidote to jealousy. You rejoice at the other person's good fortune. Yeah. Jealousy is extremely painful, isn't it? It's really painful. And, you know, when we get sunk into jealousy... Oh, the last thing we want to do is rejoice at somebody else's happiness. The first thing we want to do is destroy their happiness. Yeah. Because we deserve it, not them. So you train your mind to rejoice. And at first, it is painful. Because you don't want to do it. But you work at it. Yeah, you work at it. And you learn to rejoice. Because when you write out your season's greeting cards, you always write, may everybody be happy and may peace be on earth. So here's somebody who's happy, and we didn't even have to do something to make them happy. So our whole greeting card wish is fulfilled at least for five minutes because we know that this other person's happiness is not going to last forever. But they're happy just like we have been praying and dedicating and we didn't even have to do anything. So we should be the first one to rejoice because our prayers and our aspirations are being fulfilled. Right? You don't believe me. <laughs> okay? So you have to work on it. And believe me, I mean, I know for myself it is so painful. But if you work on it, you can do it. 
And it happens gradually, and you keep working on it, and you never get to perfect rejoicing except when you're a Buddha. But you can certainly make progress on that. Okay. When you're struck by arrogance and pride, yeah, for once my big nose serves me. I have something big to stick up. Look. <laughs> yeah. What do you meditate on to do away with your pride? Huh? Well, one thing, what they usually suggest, is you meditate on the aggregates, the constituents, and the elements. Or the aggregates, the sources, and the elements. And you go, huh? What are those? And that's exactly the point. You meditate on something that is very difficult to understand. It looks easy. Oh, there's five aggregates, six sources, but sometimes 12 sources. But then then there's 18 constituents, and so there's just the number list. It's very easy until you you start really thinking about it and somebody asks you a question. Okay, and then you realize, uh, I'm not so, I'm really not on top of it at all. Okay, so that makes you a little bit more humble. Um, Another way to combat arrogance is to think everything I know or every talent or ability I have came because of other people. Okay, if you know a certain skill, you weren't born with that skill. Somebody taught it to you. Yeah, if you no, if you, yeah, whatever we know was taught to us by other people. We didn't know it all by ourselves. Yeah, whatever you, skill you have, whether it's, you know, changing a tire or doing heart surgery, it doesn't matter. Somebody else taught you how to do that. Yeah. So there's nothing to be arrogant of thinking that we are the original source of you know, all of our extreme ability. And especially if you're arrogant about your looks or your athletic ability, be very aware that that's only going to last for a short time. Yeah, because everybody's getting older and everybody's getting uglier and their bodies are falling apart. And that includes us too. Yeah, so don't get proud over any of that. Okay. Use whatever knowledge and abilities we have to contribute to society and contribute to the well-being of others, but don't get arrogant about it. Okay, so this is factor substitution. When angry, we meditate on fortitude. When filled with sensual craver, craving, we contemplate the unattractiveness of the body. Uh, we don't want to do that meditation. <laughs> when I lived in Singapore, I worked a lot with the young people from the polytechnics and the universities. And so, um, you know, uh, they, they had asked a little bit, you know, well, how do we kind of control sexual desire? You know, they, they, you don't say the word, you know. You know what I mean. Um, 
And so I said, uh, you meditate on the body, and you look at what the body is really made out of. Yeah? And it's not really your eyes are like diamonds and your teeth are like pearls. Because if you had the eyeballs out there sitting alone, do they look so great? If you had all the teeth sitting there, do they look like pearls? (laughs) If you took the skin off the other person, is that something you want to embrace? Yeah, you did a great song about that. You should do that again. <laughs> yeah. So we look at, so I, I told them to do this, and one young man came to me, you know, after a while, and he said, But venerable, uh, you know, this is inhibiting my dating. <laughs> Yeah, but it works. It works. Yeah. Jeffrey Epstein should have learned it. Yeah. Harvey Weinstein should have learned it. Yeah. Matt's Ga- Matt Gates, you know, it would have helped these people. Yeah. Another topic to teach in Congress. <laughs> <laughs> You know, they're so obsessed with these things now. So many legislatures are doing bills that are anti-trans people, you know? So this whole, I won't go into it, you know, this whole thing that happened in Arkansas involves, you know, they asked the governor, well, how many kids do you think are taking hormones? He said, we don't know exactly. So they don't have numerical evidence. But it looks like around 200. So, yeah, to mess with the lives of 200 kids, they're spending all this time in the legislature making up this obnoxious bill. Yeah, and getting paid for it by the taxpayers. Why don't they spend that time and energy improving the education in the state for all the children? Why do they have to make enemies out of two kids who have gender dysphoria, or 200 kids, and when they don't even have the accurate data? Why not help all the kids have a better education? Anyway, I won't get on my soapbox. But, you know, um, you get you get the idea, I think. So by substituting a virtuous state of mind for a non-virtuous one, there is a sensation of the virtuous one by factor substitution. So it's called cessation because that manifest affliction that was in your mind that was making you say and do things and create karma has now diminished. And you diminished it by replacing it with another kind of thought, another way of looking at the situation. That's factor substitution. 
The second kind of, so that one is not nirvana, okay? It's the cessation, a temporary cessation of the affliction, yeah. It's going to come back again, maybe even later the same day. But, you know, you, you did some work and you handled the situation. The second one is cessation through suppression. And this is the result of attaining the meditative absorptions. So strong samadhi temporar temporarily overcomes the manifest form of the five hindrances and other defilements, bringing the peace and bliss of concentration. Okay, so you attain serenity, then you get into the, the dhyanas and deeper states and the form, you know, the dhyanas are the form realm absorptions, then you get into the formless realm absorptions. And what, because you're so single-pointedly on one object, then all the other afflictions go way down, you know, because your mind is focused on something else, so there's no energy to give to the afflictions, okay? So then the mind becomes very peaceful, very blissful, and uh, the five hindrances for concentration, which also hinder us in our daily life, those go down, you know, so like sensual desire, ill will, uh, doubt, restlessness, regret, these kinds of things, you know, they go way, way down. So, but it's a temporary suppression due to this, the samadhi. Again, the root is not cut. So since the defilements are not active during meditative absorption, it seems that they have been eradicated. However, they have only been suppressed and their seeds remain in the mind stream. So that when that person comes out of that samadhi, yeah, because the seeds of the affliction are still in the mind stream, the afflictions can arise again. Okay? And what the, the thing that it may feel good to have that kind of samadhi, and then even make it so that you get born in the form and formless realms where you don't have the kind of gross, uh, you don't have the evident pain that, that we have here. But you aren't liberated and you still have the seeds of destructive karma on your mind stream. So when the karma to be born in those blissful realms end, then you're back here in the desire realm and all your afflictions manifest again. Okay, so that's why it's important to eradicate them. Okay, then the third one is cessation through eradication. So this is the cessation attained through penetrative wisdom that cuts off the defilements so that they can never arise again. So this cessation is attained beginning at the stage of stream-enterer, or the path of seeing. And this is according to how, in the Pali tradition, they describe the, the levels or the stages of uh, becoming an arhat. Okay, so this cessation is attained at the beginning of the stage of the stream-enterer, which is their path of seeing. It progresses through the stages of once-returner and non-returner, 
which is the path of meditation, and culminates in our hotship, the path of no more learning. Okay, so they describe, you know, the Arya stages. You have approacher and abider to stream entry, approacher and abider to once returner, approacher and abider to non-returner, approacher and abider to arhat. Okay, so this is this kind of cessation, the cessation through eradication, is when you have a direct perception of emptiness, and then you apply, you employ that wisdom to cut off. Remember, yesterday I was talking about the afflictions have various levels and gradations. You use it to cut off these various uh, gradations and levels of the afflictions until at our hotship, all the afflictive obscurations are obliterated. Okay? So this is a call, you know, we're doing this according to the Pali tradition. According to the Sanskrit tradition, then, uh, you know, you still have the uh, cognitive obscurations that you still have to eliminate. Okay, so this one is the real nirvana. Okay, the cessation through eradication. The fourth one, the ultimate cessation of defilement, is explained in the Pali tradition yeah, as the reality that is the ultimate absence of all defilements. So cutting off defilements completely depends on a reality that is completely free from defilements, a reality that is ever-existing, unconditioned, and unborn. It is the existence of this unborn state, the reality of nirvana, that makes the eradication of all defilements possible. This nirvana is the object of penetrating wisdom. When wisdom sees the truth of nirvana, and actualizes true cessation, defilements are eradicated. So this cessation, they don't describe it in the Pali tradition as being selflessness or emptiness. But remember yesterday, we were talking about the true cessation being the emptiness of the mind of somebody who has eradicated a certain portion of afflictions. So that was equating like true cessation and emptiness. So they have a relationship there. So here, like I said, in the Pali tradition, they don't call this emptiness, but it sounds very much like what in the Sanskrit tradition is called emptiness. And because the nature of the mind lacks inherent existence, yeah, therefore, you know, the afflictions can be eradicated from the mind. So this underlying reality of emptiness yeah, is what allows for the true cessation that is a result of cutting off the afflictions at the root. Okay? So this one would, would be an actual nirvana as well. There's different, there's different kinds of nirvana. 
So we'll get to that later on, okay? But this can be called a form of nirvana. Okay. So then here, the, the reflections. So remember the reflections can be used as meditation. They can be used as discussion questions or whatever, or just as a review of the section. So one, remember a time when you applied an antidote to an affliction, such as greed or the wish for revenge, and that affliction temporarily subsided. So that's factor, cessation by factor substitution. Consider that it is possible for afflictions to subside for a longer period of time due to the force of having strong concentration that makes the mind extremely tranquil and peaceful. Okay, so that's the, the second one that was uh, cessation through suppression. Then three, consider that it is possible to perceive reality directly and by this eradicate some level of defilement. So we do, you know, we eradicate it level by level. Uh, So that's the third one, cessation through eradication. Four, consider that it is possible to deepen and stabilize that perception of reality so that all afflictive obscurations are eradicated such that they can never return. So this is also cessation through eradication when it's at its ultimate level. And then five, make a strong determination to do this. Yeah, so the first four steps are considering what is impossible, what is possible, you know, and starting with the easiest thing and then seeing that we can train our mind in deeper and deeper ways. And then that gives us confidence that nirvana and liberation are possible. Okay, so we'll stop here for this session. Uh, Maybe people have questions? I just have a comment. Um, I've been um, uh, struck by how with the change in administration after the election, how much easier it is for me to work with my mind than before. And so that tells me that my mind isn't very strong, first of all, Mm -hmm. and how easy it is pulled into a really negative and hateful uh, views of things. And then when Mm -hmm. there's somebody at the helm that has a lot of compassion, it's easier. So that that was quite interesting to yeah. notice. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody else had that experience? <laughs> I think a lot of people have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a question online. What is the meaning of stream enter, once returner, non-returner, and so forth? Okay. So a stream enter... Uh, I don't want to get into the to their their gradations of levels of having removed the afflictions. Okay, so a stream enter, uh, according to the Pali tradition, has eliminated um, view of the of the 
uh, changeable you know, view of view of the uh, person per, <laughs> view of the personal identity, doubt, and wrong views. Okay, as uh, a month's returner has eliminated those three, three, and in addition, has reduced but not eliminated sensual desire and ill will. A non-returner has, uh, in addition to before, now eliminated sensual desire and long, uh, wrong uh, ill will. And then an arhat has eliminated all the afflictions. Okay, there's, there, the, or the fetters, there's 10 fetters. Okay, so they're just stages of, uh, on the path to awakening. So it's not like you realize emptiness and boingo the next moment, you know, all your problems are solved and, you know, you're floating in the sky somewhere. Um, yeah. Uh, I was wondering, could you share how you dealt with the situation when you were excluded from the clique and how you didn't see yourself as a victim? Or maybe you did, because I had a similar experience and it's haunted me my whole life. I still haven't been able to get over it. <laughs> yeah. How I dealt with it as a sixth grader, I cried and I blamed the other people. Okay. That's all I knew how to do. Yeah. So thank goodness for the Dharma that taught me other ways to, to deal with situations when I'm being excluded as an adult. And I've been excluded lots of times, you know, and it's a painful thing, but you, you learn to deal with it over time. Yeah. Cause you see your own afflictions arise and how then the afflictions just run the show and make, make the situation even more harmful because of the way we've described it to ourselves because it's the other person's fault and if the uh, it's the other person's fault there's nothing i can do about it they have to change and you know they're not going to change i can't make them change yeah if it has something to do with the way i'm looking at the situation like at that time in sixth grade if i had looked at it and i said oh you know, did I want Rosie kicked out of the, the group for a good mo with a good motivation, or was I being nasty? Well, I was being nasty. So, if I would dished out nastiness, the boomerang effect is it's going to come back to me. So, why am I complaining? Yeah, I put the energy out there, it's boomeranging back to me. Yeah, of course, if I'm nasty, people don't want a nasty person in their group. And so if I was smart, I would have realized that. And then I would have said, okay, I have to be careful in the future not to be so petty and nasty because I only create the cause for that same thing to be done to me just have one comment is that I would think that the first cessation by factor substitution at the level of the stages of my practice, I could um, probably use this as a little bit of juice, and a little bit of encouragement to start taking the antidotes a lot more seriously. Because I've, I've come to think that when I have an afflicted state of mind, I really, I want to just get rid of it. You know, I look for 
what's happening. So, but when I have virtuous states of mind, I still have a lot of magical thinking that they don't really have any causes. This is very strange, <laughs> discordant yes. thing I got going on there. Yeah. So if I could understand that by using the antidote, this form of cessation can happen, and that those mind, the, those more positive states of mind can occur. It doesn't. It's no magical thinking. It has a cause, and it's using the antidote before you get too crazy. Yeah. And so. Yeah. Yeah. It's um. It's um. How to say the situation we spoke about in the beginning. Um, uh, police officer, I, I am kind of stuck with that still, and I couldn't follow really the teachings afterwards. It was so touching. But, um, uh, you know, just like you say, I don't really know what's going on, and these police officers will shoot immediately. And for me, it's like imagining myself, like I'm not exposed much to black American people, and so this unknown, the foreignness of um, their behavior, even their movements, how they talk, um, I can just imagine that it could cause a certain anxiety. And then in the American culture that there are so many weapons around, as we spoke about it many times, that this is just dreadful for the police, you know, that they never know who's in front of them what they are doing right now. It's, it's a dead end. if. if the weapons are not diminished here in the U.S. I can't even see an end of it. Hmm. Yeah, the gun, the guns fit in with this a lot. Yeah, but the the basic thing that's happening is people are very often intent on separating people into different groups based on superficial characteristics. Yeah, and then we see when it's based on superficial characteristics like this, this is what happens. Yeah. Yeah, that example stuck in my mind too, but mainly because Rodney King was like 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Nothing much has changed, it seems. Right. Well, this has been going on since the first slaves came in 16-something. Yeah. I wanted to share that around the same time as Rodney King, there were riots between the black and Jewish community in Crown Heights in Brooklyn. Mm. And there was a actress named Anna Devere Smith who went and interviewed people from both communities. And then she made those into short monologues. And then she alone performed all of them. Wow. So you saw this woman, she played Reverend L. Sharpton to like a Hasidic Jewish housewife. But from that, it was such a strong imprint to me like, one, you, any one of us could be any of them. Yeah. Like the common humanity of everybody involved in this conflict yeah. became so clear. Um, yeah. And how identity is not this fixed thing. If one person can play them all. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. Just to respond to Venerable Jampa, I do want to recommend a book called My Grandmother's Hands by Resma Manekem. I'm not sure I'm saying his name right, but he talks about the trauma of, of hundreds of years, actually, of violence that is carried by all different types of people, including the trauma of the police mm -hmm. and how that gets interacted. So yeah. it's like seed upon seed upon seed upon seed of conditioning, 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 conditioning. Yeah, in all the different in groups. In all the different parts, yeah. Yeah, in all the different groups. And then you have these seeds of trauma, but then... So much depends on how you relate to the past. Yeah, 
you can relate to the previous trauma as I'm a victim, yeah, and get really into that victim identity. Or you can relate to it in a very different way, like Elie Wiesel, you know, who was uh, in Auschwitz, or one of the concentration camps, you know, and lived through it. So, you know, we shouldn't see, there's all these things that happened in the past, personally, and to whatever group we belong to, but not to concretize this stuff so much that it makes our view limited. And that's something that's happening a lot in the country now, I think. (laughs) 